pretty well. I'm ready to eat after this and get started on the next show. How many shows you guys do? Uh, I got another show tomorrow. We're going to be having the um, one of the Democrat nominees on the show tomorrow oh, wow. to inter interview them. Um, that's probably the, one of the ones I'm most excited about because uh, the <laughs> Democrats have have not been uh, on on the right side of me no. in the last couple of years, and so I I want to I want to see the difference between a Mississippi Democrat and a, and a uh, northern Democrats, see if there's any difference in and why Democrats of the South and Democrats of the North don't quite meet in the middle. Are you from the North? No, I'm from down here in the South, but okay. you know, it seems like there's a different breed of Democrat down here than the Democrats that are on our two uh, coastal areas, you know, California, New York areas. Those Democrats seem to be outrageously different from, you know, your Joe Manchins and your Kristen Cinemas. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I don't even think I call them Democrats anymore. They've 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 gone so far to the left that there really isn't even a moderate anymore. I mean, you know, it's even it's Manchin who and Cinema, you know, you gotta applaud the fact they didn't fall for that build back broke plan, but uh, they still vote 98 percent with uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi, so. As much as you want to give accolades, you know that, that's still not what a moderate Democrat is. I think uh, right now, uh, the biggest strength that the Democrats have as a party is they stick together a lot, a lot more than than the Republican Party does, and they have a much louder voice than the independents do by a long shot. And most of the time when you're, you know, I, I, I tipped it to run for Congress before. And most of the time when you say that you're going to run on the independent ticket, largely due to Bernie Sanders, I would, I would suppose, they always lump you in with the Democrats. I guess oh, yeah. say, I say Bernie Sanders is to blame for that because he's in the only independent senator we got. But every time he runs for presidency, he's running on the Democrat ticket. So it makes people think that independents yeah. are Democrats. That's because he knows better to run for what he is as a socialist, you know, so it's the reason why he doesn't identify as a socialist. He identifies as an independent. And when he runs, he doesn't run as a socialist. He runs as a Democrat because that's the closest thing that's aligned to him. You know, and I'm, I'm a conservative, actually, to tell you the truth. Very conservative. Well, we're going to get ready to ask you a couple of questions. I know we got to get you out of here by seven. Yeah. Uh, so we'll try to get this done. By seven? Uh, by uh, by six six o'clock six thirty. Okay, okay. <laughs> I was gonna say holy cow. <laughs> yeah, Rhett, Rhett told me you have an event at seven, so we're gonna yeah. try to get this done, and so we so you don't uh be late or miss anything on account of us. So yeah, here with the Serve America. Uh, so good day everyone, and welcome to Serve America, and we're going to share in America's rich history, but no people, uh, sh perhaps share in our great history of America more than our next guest tonight. We're gonna to be interviewing the uh, first Republican candidate to actually uh, reach out and uh, communicate with us. Uh, Carl, uh, can you pronounce your last name for me? Boyenton. Carl Boyenton. And he is the Republican candidate for Congress of Fort Fisher, Mississippi. There's people such as these that give the largest and longest lasting impressions in the story that we all live here. Politics so often seen as the neutral force where we can hope 
to have somebody represent us on the grand stage trying to secure us more advantage, uh, advantageous benefits. Over the course of the next hour, we will ask the tough questions that most debate formats will not allow or present the candidate with the time necessary to give an accurate answer. So we will press on issues ranging from economic issues to social issues to anywhere in between. And so without further ado, I'd like to introduce tonight's guest, Mr. Carl Boyanton. So please tell our viewers a little bit about yourself and why you are running, and then we'll get started with the questions. Well, I'm, uh, I'm a businessman, I'm not a politician. Uh, I've been in business for over 40 something years. I've built uh, several successful businesses. I've hired thousands of people, created jobs, met budgets, you know, had to earn the money to pay the people. I don't have uh, the government supporting me. I've never been a government employee. So, you know, you really learn a lot when you're the one that has to do all that. Uh, I was born in Miss Tennessee and I baptized and raised in Picayune, Mississippi. Uh, I actually left uh, Picayune and I went to Seattle for 20 years, 24 years. And in Seattle, I built and ran a billion dollar company and retired in 2000, came back down south, back to Mississippi and uh, uh, opened up some more businesses. Matter of fact, even to this day right now, I'm starting another business and I'm working with some Mississippi businesses here to advance what they're doing to a couple different uh, projects I got going on. I'm working with them to try to get it uh, off the ground and, and some interesting things because one of them is kind of like a COVID cure, preventative that we're working on. So uh, they asked me to help them. So I started helping them. Thank you for that. So now that you're with us, Rhett, uh, I'm going to let you start off with some of your questions. What do you got for us? We're doing introductions and then we're going to get into some uh, more questions. I know we're pressed for time, so we, we don't want to, to take all day. Okay. Well, can y'all hear me all right? Yeah, you can hear you. Okay, we'll start with this one. Explain your key issues with Representative Palazzo and why you chose to run against him this year. Well, my key issues are the same ones that always been. He's a corrupt politician, you know, and uh, as cliche as it sounds, you know, I, I don't believe we should have politicians out there that are corrupt. I think we should bring them out into the open and we should get rid of them. And unfortunately, you know, uh, being the incumbent, they give him a lot of leeway, even though the FBI investigated him off of the violations I filed against him. And even though the FBI investigated him, they found 6-0 that he committed campaign finance violations. Now it's in front of the committee and there's 20 of them. And I have no faith that the committee will do anything about it because they're probably just as corrupt as he is. You know, there's just too much corruption in politics. And there again, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I got into the race is because, you know, I, I believe we need more people that go there and take this as an honor, not as a way to get rich. You know, he pushed a 12 year term limit bill and now he's going for his 14th year. So he doesn't even believe in what he pushes, you know? So he's trying to go for a career like everybody else. They want a career. They want that retirement. They want to make that money. 
And myself personally, I think we should have term limits and I think we should get rid of retirement out of Congress and the Senate. They shouldn't be paid retirement. It should be a service and honor to go there, not a career. When did he push that? I'm sorry. I was unaware of him pushing a 12 year term limit bill. Yeah, he puts it in the basket. He puts it in the hamper every year so he can campaign on the fact that he's uh, in term limits. Just to say he did it. Oh, yeah. I carry his term limit bill but, around. But 12, it's a two-page term limit bill. 12 years. Is, uh, that's ridiculous. That's 24 years in office. Uh, I mean, if how can you be for term limits if you're giving him basically a lifetime in Congress? Well, that's the six-year or the, the sixth term. Yeah, I mean, that's usually the one you hear talked about. No, it's not 12 terms. It's 12 years. Oh, not 12 six, oh 12 years. Six, 12 years. six two-year so, terms. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, 24, there's no reason to have a term limit. If you're going 24 years, you know, you, <laughs> yeah, you got yourself yeah, a career. Because one of the one of the things we've talked about with, uh, with all of our guests so far has been the idea of term limits. So far, yeah. everyone's agreed. And my idea has always been uh, give it three years, uh, not three years, three terms in the House, two terms in the Senate, and be done with it. That's total 18 years. You can make a career and, and get out. And uh, if, I mean, I'm even in favor of putting a term limit on the Supreme Court. I think we have some of those guys in there for a long time. I think I think 20 years is fair. And right there shouldn't be a lifetime term. appointment to anything. I hate to say it. There shouldn't be a lifetime appointment to anything. We should have term yeah. limits. And I agree with your, your six years and 12 years, but the problem is, is getting that to get the Congress and senators to vote for it, because the biggest problem is you got congressmen there and women that they're going to say, well, that's not fair. Why do they get 12 years and we get six? So I actually yeah. I carry around the 2000, not the 2000, the 1994 contract with America term limit bill, which is what I want to introduce when I get there which is 12 in the Congress, 12 in the Senate, so they don't feel like they're getting, you know, uh, uh, one guy gets better than the other. And then it doesn't happen for 12 years. So the, the reasoning, I see that as something that can possibly get passed. And what I want to do is when I get there, I'll sit down with every congressman and senator, congresswoman, and say, all right, look, 90% of you guys all say your four term limits. This is a bill you should be able to get behind. Because that means... It doesn't come into effect for 12 years. Then you got 12 years. So it will not affect you. But at least in 12 years, we've got a law on the books that's going to stop, uh, that's going to be term limits. And I can't understand how any of these guys would not be on board with that. Because it won't affect them, their current bill. So I can't understand why they wouldn't say, okay, that sounds like a good idea. Let's get on it. Let's pass this in. And if I get there, I'm uh, right out the gate. I'm going to push that and try to push the leadership to put it on the floor, get everybody's vote on it. Let's see how people uh, vote on it, get them on the record. So we see all these people that like Palazzo that says, oh, I'm for term limits. Oh, but not me. It's like the hypocrisy from, you know, all these other things with masks and uh, mandates and stuff. Rules you know, for well, thee, yeah, but not for me. We want you to wear a mask, but well, we're not, we're not going to wear it. You know, it's actually a really good idea having a delay so that yeah. it's actually not them that they're putting the limits on. Right, but they're always being history as the ones that passed it. So that's why I say it's a win-win deal, but you've got to actually push it. I'm not sure why they didn't push it during the 1994 contract with America, but I believe, you know, the times come now where 
85% of Republicans and 79% of uh, Democrats believe we should have term limits. So I don't see how we can't get it done. Because uh, I think one of the major issues that we face here is that I think so many Americans feel like they're not fairly represented in Congress because some of these people have been there for 40 years, 50 years, and they're so out of touch Right. So they really only represent the lobbyists that and the people that are actually giving them money in these slush funds. And the American people feel like there's nobody that there's that they can really say that they're representing them because these guys are so disconnected from the uh, base American person. Well, they are. And that's the problem is, I mean, you could tell by Nancy Pelosi when we had the pandemic start and she's like, well, I don't understand what's wrong with you guys and opening her $20,000 refrigerator with her. $14 a pint ice cream down there. As long as I have this, I'm great shape. Well, yeah, you live behind a walled house. You're worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So yeah, it's not affecting you much at all, is it? You know, but try talking to the people exactly. that are working that you're, you're, that are losing their jobs and stuff. It might have a little exactly. bit more of an effect to them. Well, now that we're talking about money, uh, that goes to my first question, which is on the economy. And so the economy is often the number one issue for voters. So I would like to know, what economic system do you subscribe to and why do you believe that it is the best system for Americans? Well, capitalists for one, capitalism, and the best way about going about it is we need to get back to the Constitution and have the federal government not take care of as much as it's doing. And as a congressman, and if we take back Congress and we have a, the majority in, uh, in Congress, they hold the purse strings and stuff. So what we need to do and this is the problem with our rhinos and our career politicians. They're always afraid they might not get reelected, so they don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. They don't want to take anything away from anybody. Well, you know, if we're in charge and we hold the purse strings, how about we start defunding some of this stuff? You know, you don't have to. We don't need a Department of Education up there. We've got a Department of Education in every state. How about we defund it? You know, uh, we don't need an EPA. Every state has an EPA. How about we defund it? Uh, we hold the key. If we're in charge and we're doing the budget, we can cut out a lot of this pork that we don't need. And I believe we need a balanced budget amendment, $30 trillion. And 40% of that money that they, they're spending has been printed in the last year. That is crazy. And they want to print more money. I mean, if you look at uh, Bernie Sanders, he don't think 10, 12 trillion more dollars worth of spending is a bad deal. But brilliant if you go about a Green New Deal. Oh, it's okay. crazy. That's what I mean. That, that's why, like I say, you know, for the economy, we really should be giving money back to people, not taking it from them. And since he's been in office, you know, the poor people in the middle class are the ones that are being hammered. Because if you're rich, you got money. You know, if it's $2 a gallon or $10 a gallon, it don't bother you. You know, money, you're rich. It doesn't mean anything. But for a poor person, you know, you're going to work in the morning and it's like, well, it's $4 a gallon of gas. I got to go 20 miles. Well, what am I have for lunch today? Maybe I need to pass lunch because I got to fill my car up with gas. So, you know, these are the kind of things that I don't think our administration really even recognizes the plight of people that are working for a living. Exactly. Uh, next question for you, Rhett. 
Please explain the stance you take when it comes to COVID-19 vaccine policy and lockdowns. I'm sorry, what'd you say? Please explain the stance you take when it comes to COVID-19 vaccine policy and lockdowns. Well, for one, I'm a freedom of choice person. I actually was day one when Ingalls Shipyard was out protesting the vaccine mandates. I was out protesting with them. When Stennis was protesting vaccine mandates, I was out protesting with them. Uh, I had an interview with Sun Herald, the paper, and they asked me my opinion. And they said, well, you're the only one that has come out as a politician against vaccine mandates. And I explained to her, I said, well, that's probably because the other people are politicians. I'm a businessman. I said, you know, a politician is afraid they're going to hurt somebody's feelings that might vote for them. So they don't want to come out and take a stance on something. And who was the last person to come out? Stephen Palazzo. Well, everybody's against it. So now I guess I'll come out. So I actually, to me, it's your choice. If you want to take the vaccine, take it. If you don't, don't. You know, again, the way you do it is you try to protect the people that are most vulnerable, not healthy people. I mean, if you look at like, I think I just heard today, it's like if you're a kid that's under 18 in high school, in, in school, you got like a 0.002 chance of dying from this. That's the same chance as a flu. So why are we mandating vaccines for kids, making them mask up? which I hate to say it, but masks don't work. I was at a research lab the other day and the guy was telling me the same thing. He says, you know, these things are so stupid. He says that a COVID virus is like five microns. Said these paper masks and cloth masks, you can get 15 to 20 microns through them. So they're totally useless. They're, they're not good at all. This is even the N95s. If you don't have them sealed around the edge, you're still breathing the air out that way. He says, you know, the masks do not work. They might help a tiny, minuscule amount, but instead, we're spending billions of dollars buying these cheap masks that don't work for everybody. And the bad part is, you know, these politicians are, they're invested in it now, so they're afraid to say, well, we need to get away from masks. Because as soon as we get away from masks, somebody's not making money. And it's China, because China's where all the masks are made. Same with the, uh, the, uh, the test. The, they're all made in China. Which again, yeah, that's why you see like, all that stuff here in the United States, which is all the uh, mask mandates suddenly lifting because it's an election year. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Democrats are lifting them. They, they talk yeah. about the Democrats lifting them, but, you know, heck, uh, here in Mississippi, you know, I haven't worn a mask here since the pandemic came out, yeah. you know, because we haven't had a bigger uh, outbreak than any other state. But yet, you know, uh, we've just gone out with our life and everything. And you still got people in New York. I'll be in Washington, D.C. here in a couple of weeks and. Uh, I'm staying in Virginia because, you know, they got vaccine mandates and, you know, I'm just not going to go somewhere where I got to get a vaccine card. I absolutely agree with both of you on this one. Uh, I do want to talk about COVID, but I want to go back to one of the things that the Biden administration continues to blame on COVID, and that is uh, the rising cost of inflation. You know, the cost of inflation has reared its head and 
while the er the overt effects of COVID are here to stay for a long, well, not COVID, but uh, inflation are here to stay for a long yeah. time. I don't think we can do anything about those long-term lasting effects at the moment, but it's these short-term solutions. That's what I want to focus on. What's, what type of solutions do you have that you can bring to the table that will help deal with inflation in the short term? Because I got to say, I went to Family Dollar today to, <laughs> to get some Family $2 some now? <laughs> <laughs> more than that i mean i went just to get some stuff to make a simple pot of spaghetti and one pound of frozen ground beef six dollars yeah for one pound of beef and it's frozen and i go and i'm looking in the dollar aisle there's nothing in there it's a dollar it's all a dollar 25 i'm like this is absolutely crazy uh i think they forgot to put the s on that it's family dollars now yeah, I mean, Dollar Tree is no longer the Dollar Tree. Oh. And so uh, I think that's right now that's hurting Americans really much when we got to go, especially right. people who aren't receiving any type of uh, uh, food stamps or welfare or any type of aid. And they got to go to the store and they got to pay this stuff out of pocket. Right. You know, it really hurts when you go and you see the price of beef jump from $2.50 for one pound to $6. And the cost of milk is going up. And we've been talking about milk for a long time. But now when you go there and you buy a half gallon of milk and it's almost the same cost as a full gallon of milk, or you go and you buy a 20 ounce Pepsi and it costs more to get a cold 20 ounce Pepsi than it does to get a two liter Pepsi Mm -hmm. on the shelf. And you know, the funny part too is you look at like milk, Milk is subsidized by the federal government. Yet the market the still goes still up. Going up. Oh, yeah. That's ridiculous. That's what I don't understand because I talked to a group and they asked me about subsidies and stuff. And I said, well, you know, I'd have to look at each subsidy, subsidy on its own merit. But, you know, like um, I know for a fact, milk is still subsidized. So if milk is subsidized, you know, shouldn't it be going down, not up? You know, I don't get it. But anyway, to, to answer your question about inflation, you know, I can tell you from my business experience, because I actually own a few businesses still, one of the biggest reasons why we have inflation right now is the fuel price. If they took and said today, if Biden would come out and say, all right, look, we're going back to all of the above in our energy policy, the market would start dropping for fuel. And I can tell you, I, I load truckloads of produce all over the country. And today, for a truck coming going from McAllen, Texas, going to Miami with a load of produce, freight used to be about $4,000. Today, it's $8,000. So it's double. So now you add that to the fact that the production means have gone up. So, of course, that raises the price, too, because... Everything runs on fuel and electricity. Then you get to the distributor down in Miami. Well, now that distributor down in Miami, which is a refrigerated warehouse, their electric bills up 27%. Uh, their trucking costs are up. Their fuel to go out and deliver that produce are up 40%. So now you tack all it together and stuff, right there you've added about 120% more to the cost than it normally is. So everything we produce, everything that moves across the country, 
is gas and electricity. So if you lower those costs, you will see inflation come down. Because again, there's nothing, this country runs on fuel. You know, this Green New Deal will kill us because we're letting other people, I mean, it's the dumbest thing. We lower our volume, our production, and then we ask Russia to raise theirs. We ask the Middle East to raise their production, to lower the prices. And we're down 2 million barrels a day in production in the United States right now. That's quite a bit of, quite a bit of fuel. So we're trying to get them to raise their production to lower our cost. And Russia don't care. Russia's making a fortune off of this now. They're stronger. Oh, they to save that the market, stupidity. they can charge whatever they want, right? They right. say how it is. Now they practically monopolized the market because we've right. Biden's told us to dip out. Yeah. And now the they can is, charge what they we, want and we have to pay it. We produce it cleaner than anybody else in the world. So we're yeah, asking other it. people to pump up their dirty oil and not us produce our clean oil. And the only way that we're going to actually eventually be, you know, weaned off of oil is American ingenuity. The time will come when we'll have the alternative to fuel. But, you know, we're not going to change the temperature in the world by a tenth of a percent if you took away all of our oil, which is what they want to do, all of our coal. Because, you know, in China, you know, they're building a new coal power plant every week. Now just speak on that. To China. Uh, one of the things people always bring up is climate change, climate change. That's the whole reason why we got to go with the Green New Deal. We got to yeah. spend all this money. Paris Common Accord, trillion dollars. Don't even know yeah. why we're putting money in there. That I don't, I don't understand the Paris Common Accord. It doesn't make sense to spend a trillion dollars for no. for nothing. You can't you, the you change is, the temperature by one degree. Right. And it's and the thing is, you know. I have been studying paleontology for a long time. And in paleontology, we have a wide range of fields. And one of those fields yeah. that I found most interesting was paleoclimatology. Right. And over the course of the billions of years the earth has been around, we've had uh, three, ma three major droughts and two ice ages. And in all of those times, the earth's temperature changes have been relatively uh, cyclical and right. come and go in its own cycle. And since human beings came along on the scene about a million and a half years ago, the amount that we have contributed to global warming has been less than 1%. Yeah. The Earth, the Earth generates over 99% of all carbon wow. emissions and methane emissions that's in the atmosphere. And I, I remember hearing... Yeah, go ahead. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't it the case that the CO2 levels have been up to 200 times higher than they are now in Earth's history. Oh, yeah. And like said, yeah. you got to remember, we're well, we, the Industrial people. Revolution was the 19th century. It's not right. like we've been doing this for that long. No. Yeah. yeah not just yeah. that. Like I said, you know, we're planting more trees than we've ever had in history, which, of course, you know, trees are great for the environment and stuff. But really, it's hilarious because one volcano eruption like Mount St. Helens puts more CO2 in the atmosphere than we do for 50 years. So, I mean, again, the people that are behind this, like Al Gore and all these guys, they make money off of this. 
You know, they're yes. not serious yeah. about it's definitely in business. Cutting climate you know, I, I love the earth. I love our climate. I want to see us have a beautiful earth. You know, I try to get everybody to do things when it comes to recycling and stuff like that. But I don't see the I don't see the the necessity of money behind that. I could say uh, today, if you want to see the earth become a little bit greener, why not uh, instead of taking money? Like you said earlier, why not give some money mm -hmm. back? Why not put some incentives right. into recycling? Why not put right. some incentives into that? You know, where you used to be able to make a pretty good living if you took a, a couple of a couple of big thirty gallon bags of crushed cans down to the recycling bin. Now right. they've cut that cost, and so now you're basically recycling that stuff for nothing. So nobody's really doing that like they used to anymore. Yeah. But why not add those incentives back? Because we want to uh, take care of the of the climate and all of that stuff as the liberals like to uh, conjecture all the time, but nobody's doing the the steps in Congress to actually get people to do that. Because I guarantee you, if you told somebody that I, I give you $20, uh, if you would take all of the metal out of your trash bag and put it in a recycling bin, they would do it. I think yeah. it's, it would be better to incentivize the waste companies to start separating that stuff out. That's right. I mean, you could. I mean, it's yeah, actually true, true. just like we have waste management here. And uh, we we actually we go so far here at our house because my wife is a recycler. And, you know, down in Mississippi, that was never a big thing growing up. Nobody cared about recycling anything. But my wife's a big recycler. She actually the waste management took away all of our recycle buckets because they decided it wasn't worth the time. But yeah, my I've wife, they, they actually put up a big trash can at, here in Diamond Head. And my wife takes and separates our stuff out, goes up and throws into that trash can and the trash cans for the plastic, the glass and the cardboard. Because again, well, she believes in that, you know, for me, I tell her, babe, you know, you throw that into the recycle bin there. They're just hauling that off to the dump. You know that, right? But if it makes you feel good. Go ahead and do it. But yeah, my grandma is, does that too. I you should be able like to monetize that. But the trouble is, is expenses cost so much i mean you know you're talking about aluminum i mean you know to take and separate that aluminum out and recycle it and stuff unfortunately especially when fuel's high that's what you use to recycle stuff you got to have the fuel to heat the 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 uh smelt the smelting pots and you know it takes money to do that and that's the problem with a lot of this stuff it takes money fuel and electricity and when our prices are so high it just makes it less uh competitive to do that you know, nobody wants really to, to hear a businessman's take on that because I a lot of times I think people kind of get so wrapped up in the cost in the cost of the number, but the, and we hear percentages all of the time. But when you're actually able and you've been in the field of creating business and you've seen what the costs are, you can actually mm -hmm. give a tangible number to what that actually means. That right. means a lot more to people than than uh, percentages on a spreadsheet. Right. Oh yeah, definitely. Go ahead, Rhett, your next question. What are your personal views concerning the Federal Reserve Bank and private central bank in general? Should we audit slash abolish the Fed? Well, we definitely should audit it. I can tell you, if I get to Congress, you know, they have free willing will to do whatever they want to do. And uh, one of my buddies is actually the president of the chain of banks here. And uh, he was explaining to me the way that this borrowing money 
works. He says that, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was, but when they do that trillion dollar loan and they get it from the treasury, well, the treasury, I'm trying to remember exactly how he said it was, the treasury loans it to the Fed or vice versa. And then we spend it, but even though it's a loan, they can't pay the money back because there's a law or something that says that the Fed can't take money or vice versa. I'm trying to remember which one it is, but yes, we do need to rein in the Fed. We need to have audits on the Fed. I mean, again, we need to have a lot more transparency in everything we do. You know, we should learn this from Donald Trump. You know, when he was in office, all of a sudden, everybody knew exactly what he was saying on every call he was in. How is it now Biden could talk to anybody? We never hear anything about conversations, all the private conversations. Stuff. I thought that Hardly was- Hardly ever see Biden. <laughs> well, I, that too. <laughs> but I mean, again, but I mean, we always knew what Trump was saying. So you had- transparency whether you wanted it or not and again one thing i loved about trump was the fact that when he had had those cabinet meetings or meetings with the uh leaders of the senate and the house you know he wanted to have the the media in there so let's have this meeting and negotiate this in front of the cameras you know now that's transparency i love that and pelosi wouldn't yeah. have it so yeah you know I, I was just thinking about that the how he would like to have the press in there, but they wouldn't be able to start talking any real negotiations until the press left because Congress yeah. wasn't willing to. Well, guys, what am I getting out of it? What do I get to give my constituents? Exactly. You know, where's my cut? So they don't want to talk in front of the, the people, which I think everything should be out in the open. I think we should have this so transparent. You won't commit a crime. You won't steal from the government. You know, we need to have transparency across all levels of government. And that includes the Fed and the Treasury and the Department of Justice. Yeah, I certainly agree with you there. I think the problem is, though, if the Fed got audited, then everybody would want them abolished. Well, it might be might be a good thing then, you know. Yeah. Uh, Again, here's a question there's a lot of people you. that think it should be abolished anyway. Here's a question for you. I want to move from the economy onto taxes. Uh, I think one of the first things that Americans pay attention to on payday is how much money Uncle Sam is taking. So I want to ask you, are you in favor, uh, or should I say this way, are you for or against tax increases? Increases, And if you are in favor, are you in favor of uh, tax decreases? Well, I'm a fiscal conservative. For one, I don't believe we should be raising taxes on anybody. We should live, with, live within our means and we should look at ways to cut taxes. Uh, just as a, for instance, I was at a Harrison County Republican meeting and my competition, Bryce Wiggins was there and he's a state senator. And he was giving us an update on the fact that Mississippi's trying to get rid of the uh, state income tax. Well, that's a good thing. And so he's telling, them, telling us, he goes, well, but I don't agree with it right now. Because, you know, if we do that right now, we have to raise 18 other taxes to offset that. And I'm thinking like, you know, well, that's not an offset. I mean, I mean, that's not a cutting our income tax. That's just moving it somewhere else. 
So he wasn't for it. And then the next day when I gave a speech, I said the same thing. I said, you know, this is our state senator. And he's had another senator there with him too. And I said, as a conservative, when you said that, why didn't you follow it up with, well, maybe we can find a way to cut spending somewhere. But no, his first go-to was, we'll raise taxes on 18 other things to offset this. Well, my first go would be like, all right, let's cut that tax. And let's see if we can't cut some spending somewhere to pay for it. You know, because you give, we give a lot of money away. I mean, I believe uh, I met Shad White at a deal the other day and he's the state auditor. And he got back like a hundred million dollars from uh, uh, theft, you know, from politicians stealing money. I mean, across the board from, you know, uh, uh, bad deals for the government and everything. But again, he got back $100 million, which is great. But that's only a small percentage of what we lose. I mean, we don't investigate where our money goes. You know, and there's a lot of corrupt people out there. You give them access to all this money, it corrupts them. I mean, you know, he, he said there was a billion dollars uh, for a program up in, uh, oh, heck, I think it's uh, Tupelo area or something like that. And it ended up, the whole program fell apart and he got back like $55 million out of it. But I mean, where'd all that other money go? We just lost it. Again, you know, if you're smart, you cut taxes and you cut spending. Uh, one of the things that I always say when I give a speech is that, you know, in Medicaid, they report every year we lose 70 to $80 billion in Medicaid and fraud, waste, and abuse. And as a businessman, if I lost a thousand bucks last week, well, I smash that hole and I don't lose a thousand bucks this week. But yet politicians will sit there and every year say, we lost $80 billion in Medicaid. We lost $75 billion in Medicare. We lost 1.1 trillion in the IRS in the last 10 years. You know, but I don't hear any solutions. Like, why don't we spend $10 billion in enforcement and cut that out so we're not losing? Yeah. Or stop you know, that that's, that's, over That's not what they do. They just report it and they don't do nothing about it. And that's a politician. A politician doesn't look at it as like, wow, you know, if I save that $80 billion in 10 years, that's a trillion dollars. We balance our budget. But they don't look at it that way. It's just, all right, we lost it. There's nothing we can do about it. And they actually, simple things like Medicaid, pays for over 50% of all births in the United States. Well, you only got a 10.2% poverty rate. So only 10.2% of people should be getting their babies paid for, the births. But it's over 50%, 65% here in Mississippi, 75% in Arkansas. That means people that don't need it are getting it paid for by Medicaid. And I have a story about that, but I take a little bit of long to tell you, so I guess we can move on. You know, that goes on to my next question here, because I I worked for Centers of Medicaid and Medicare Services for a long time. I, I sold Medicaid, Medicare, I dealt with Social Security Administration, and I sold Obamacare for a good while. And then I also went to settle on the private market, and I said, to see the difference between right. the two. And that goes me to this question. Would you repeal or keep the Affordable Care Act if given the choice to put a bill on the floor? I'll tell you the truth, I ought to repeal it and replace it with something a little bit better, a little bit more thought out. But again, you know, right now, 
because uh, I talked to a lot of uh, insurance people. And if you're, I'm trying to think of a way to word this, you know, they use it as a tool to sell insurance and they can actually lower your costs and the stuff. But, you know, I believe, you know, the number one thing you do for people is you get them a job and have the insurance through the job. I'm a hundred percent for getting people off of welfare and going to work. I'm a hundred percent for, you know, helping out businesses supply benefits and stuff over giving away money and paying it to the insurance company through the government. All this stuff should be done through business and not through the government. Uh, I believe we should be, if we brought back the jobs that we've shipped over, overseas, everybody in the United States could have a good job. And if you have a job, as you know, it's probably 75, 80% of the companies out there, they provide insurance. Even Starbucks and McDonald's supply insurance. I would much prefer to have the insurance be supplied by somebody, a business, than to come from the government. Because the government does nothing efficiently. You know, even if they're saving people money and cutting the, uh, it, it looks great, but then in the end, Obama's sending them $10 billion every year to cover their loss. Well, why don't we just give them the money to begin with? I mean, it's just stupid. And you know, here's the, the thing that comes to about about that is the Affordable Care Act's not really saving them any money because when you when you yeah. get a policy from the Affordable Care Act and you got a zero dollar premium, okay, that's great. I don't have to pay anything a month, but I all my deductibles uh, are six thousand, yeah. seven thousand yeah. dollars. All my co-pays and co-insurances are locked behind a deductible, so. Yeah. You got to spend six thousand, eight thousand dollars before you can even use the coverage, and I don't know too many people my age that are going to be using that type of coverage. You know, then the Affordable Care Act comes out and says that you can't have a catastrophic health plan, which is what people in my age bracket used to get was a catastrophic plan because we um let's be let's be honest when you're young and reckless, you didn't really use coverage that much. You didn't go to the doctor as often as you did as you got older. And so that's we, right. When, when we're young, like we are, we don't need that coverage. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so uh, I don't mean to cut ahead of you, Rip, but I got one. I got uh, two more questions. One other thing on the, on the Obamacare deal, just again, it was good to get the mandate out. But see, when they took the mandate out, that didn't make it to where it could even possibly work. Because the mandate to offset the problems of, of giving away insurance, you had to charge other people that were healthy a lot more money. And as a matter of fact, even when Obamacare came out and had the mandates, I still had private insurance because there was workarounds around Obamacare, you know, that you actually could get insurance cheap. And then yeah. if something happened to you, you pay the last month's payment on your Obamacare and you're back on the plan. I mean, it was crazy, but that's the insurance we held. Until yeah, they got because the it, uh, they they called those special enrollment periods. I dealt with a whole bunch of those things, and that and it goes back to those corrupt people because when the government gets involved in that, it creates a lot more corrupt oh, yeah. people that are working in yeah. the business force. I've had so many uh, health insurance agents, or really just independent agents in general, that were 
enrolling people in coverage, yeah. but using numbers that were completely false and it was illegal. Okay. But I but I couldn't do anything about it as a person who was working for the government. I just have to fill out the information as they said, fill it out. And if the consumer winds up getting screwed in the end and having to pay back all of that money at the end of the year when it's time to file with the 1095As, heck, I can't tell the consumer that this agent just screwed <laughs> you over. Yeah. Is, you know, they, I would lose my job if I did that. But so let me ask these these two questions. I want to ask these questions together so we, so we can move on to a different topic. Um, what roles should government play in healthcare, if any? And do you support incentivizing free market competition as an answer to the growing cost of healthcare? Well, the government should pay, play a minimum part in healthcare. I mean, you know, to tell you the truth, uh, like I said, you know, jobs are what we should worry about for putting healthcare out there, supplying healthcare. Because, you know, if you've got people working and the government could play a part in helping businesses with healthcare, you know, there's a few different ways you could probably set that up to where, you know, you, just like with Trump, when Trump said you could buy healthcare across state lines, you could put together groups. So, you know, there's groups of independent businesses out there. You know, even if you're talking about 7-Elevens or whatever it is, well, of course, they got health insurance anyway, but these independent grocers and all that stuff that by themselves, they can't afford healthcare because they only got four or five employees. But if you can get 30, 40, 50 of them together, now you're buying them a block. Now you can afford healthcare to give your employees and stuff. So I think there's a lot of ways we can help get healthcare out there. But I believe, again, to me, it's through the private sector. You know, the government does nothing efficiently, uh, in my opinion. If it is, it's very little. But to put it to the private sector, they'll find ways to solve the problem. You know, the government actually can get out of the way, open up the markets to everywhere so I can buy insurance out of New York or wherever, open up more insurance companies. Because, you know, like in Mississippi, we only had, I think, two insurance companies or something at one time. Yeah, it was, it was three, uh, three. Ambetter, yeah. Magnolia Health, and Cigna. But, yeah. And we had we had some more, but when Novartis Affordable Care came in there, they yeah. raised the prices so high that those smaller companies, they, they went bankrupt. Well, that's what I mean. That's, that's where government comes in. You know, Obamacare kills that. You're down to three insurance companies. So when you can buy an insurance company across straight, state lines and you can build groups out of independent businesses and stuff, then you can maximize your dollars by having 20, 30, 40 businesses go together to get their insurance. And so, like with me, if I have five employees, it's going to cost me a fortune employee uh, to, to get insurance for five employees. But there was 20 other businesses that had five employees that I grouped up with. Now I can negotiate. Now I can get better plans. And that's where you get it. The more you put into it, the less amount you have to pay. You spread that uh, loss across the most amount of money, most amount of people, and that's where you lower your prices at. Um, all right, Rhett, your next question. Should the Silicon Valley tech giants have the right to censor and deplatform whoever they choose, or should they be regulated as public utilities since that is where the majority of our free speech is taking place today? Yes, they should be regulated. You know, I'm a free business person. I believe in business to be able to control themselves. 
But what I don't believe is when you have a medium like big tech that shuts down just people they don't like. I mean, we have to put checks and balances on these people that if you're going to take and support the Democrat Party, then that's a donation to the Democrat Party. You should actually put it on your a disclaimer on your on your media that we are a arm of the Democrat Party. So don't believe anything we say, you know, to take and censor. I mean, like Donald Trump, how in the world in this day and age could you censor the most powerful man in the world? Yet you let the Ayatollah stay on there. You let, I mean, criminals stay on there, but you censor the president of the United States and you censor stories that you don't like, like the Hunter Biden story. And these are all things that had they been out there, there's a good chance Biden wouldn't be president. So again, very good chance, especially with the polls right now. That's what I mean. That's why I say, yes, I, I would make them pay. I, I would make Mark Zuckerberg play pay. I mean, he donated like $350, $400 million to help try to set up these ballot boxes throughout the uh, country and stuff, only in Democrat areas. You, and know, you know, now that's Supreme a Democrat Court, um, donation. Supreme Court in Wisconsin ruled a couple of, couple of weeks ago that uh, drop ballots aren't constitutional right. at all. Yeah. So a lot of uh, election fraud happened just as a result of these drop ballots because they, okay. if the Supreme Court can rule that, and yeah, and I don't want to get into that because they might try to <laughs> shut 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 me down for saying this. Yeah. But you know, if some of these rulings happened during the election year and during the election cycle when it was yeah. supposed to happen, if some of these, uh, you know, uh, one of the problems I have with the Republican Party right now is uh, that they're that they're so weak. You know, Trump was really the only thing that got yeah. me to vote Republican because he had, he projected strength and he did what he said he was going to do. And, you know, a lot of these cases where we have a lot of talk, a lot of bluster coming out of the parties and the Republican party, a lot of this stuff could have been squashed months in advance of the election, oh, yeah. maybe a year in advance of the election, but they dropped the ball. They didn't do it. Well, that's the trouble is like I say, they're career politicians. They don't want to buck the system. They just want to keep getting reelected and stuff. They lie. They cheat. Like I said, Stephen Palazzo takes that two-page bill for term limits, drops it in the hamper every year so he can take and go out and campaign that I'm for term limits. Never does anything about it. Never pushes it. And it shows you again that he's running again, going for his 14th year because he doesn't believe in what he's pushing. You know, I can tell you right now. I'm pushing the term limit bill. I will not go over 12 years. Right now, I won't do it. I will not take lobbyist money. You know, I'm actually self-financing. And I've had people give me, you know, gruff about that because, oh, well, you know, you don't have any support. Well, no, the difference is, is I don't like asking people for money. You know, I've, have, I've been in business for over 40 years. I've earned money. I'm spending my own money. We had you the know. independent and libertarian candidates on here. And one of those things we talked about was, uh, again, this goes back to some of that corruption. Yeah. But the FDFEC comes out with these ridiculous and, and erroneous 
uh, requirements for you to be able to run on some of these offices, especially if you're trying to run as an independent candidate where you have to raise so much money from unique independent donors when a lot of these people could self-fund out. As, uh, for instance, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of uh, Michael Bloomberg, but he's the sixth richest man in the world. Right. If he wants to come in and fund his own campaign, he right. should have been able to do that about the FEC saying that he has to have so many unique donors in order to do stuff. But why is the guy who, who can buy most of the United States if he wanted to need to have any donors? And not just that, you notice that even though he put a, uh, what he put in, almost a billion dollars, he didn't come million, close to winning. So it didn't mean he could, he could buy the race, you know? And it's like me. I mean, I'm not trying to buy the race. I just don't like going out and can, uh, trying to ask people for money. You know, I believe in this enough that if I get this job, it's an honor. I'll take a huge cut and pay to go there, but I'm going there to get something done. And if I can't get something done, I don't want to stay up there. I ain't lost nothing up in Washington, D.C. You know, I I actually believe that I can get something done. And again, if I don't, I don't want to be there. You know, this is actually should be, you know, back until the turn of the 20th century, the average time in Congress and Senate was like about 1.8 to 3.8 years. Now we're up to almost 12 years as an average for people in Congress and Senate. So, I mean, you know, it's gotten to where it's a job, it's a career, they get rich off of it, they don't want to leave. So, I mean, we need to get them to leave by taking and pushing term limits. You know, and I'm, not afraid, to take, I'm not afraid to take on any of these, these, uh, these uh, positions. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I go out uh, in the Mississippi here, uh, we did race and reconciliation uh, forums all throughout the, the district here. My buddy's a deacon up at a Baptist church up in uh, Ellisville. And, you know, I just told him one day, I said, you know, when Biden came out and said, you know, the number one uh, problem in the United States is white supremacy. I called him and he's a black deacon up there. And I said, you know, this is bull. I said, you know, you're not racist. I'm not racist. We need to do something about that. So we actually because held just, like four or five. I mean, just, just recently, so we're going to talk on that. because I, I, That was going to lead to one of my next questions when we're talking about welfare, because I, I want to get rid of welfare altogether. But it goes to my one of my next questions. And I'm, I'm going to tend it before I ask this question. But you have uh, Spotify right now. We do a po- Our podcast gets published to Spotify. So it sort of affects us. We're smaller. We don't have as big a voice, so they don't really know about us right now. We're kind of in the corner. Uh, that you guys ain't making that money, Joe us. Rogan is. Hey, no, we're not doing that yet. But we're <laughs> trying to get there, but you know, they're they're all up in arms about Joe Rogan uh, using the N word. And yeah. in context, when you're talking about some of the things that Red Fox would say when he was doing his stand-up yeah. shows, HBO, uh, what Sherman Helms would say on the Jeffersons, on Archie yeah. Bunker, on uh, and the music that black people listen to. Yeah. But Joe Biden comes out, he says the word uh, when he was swearing, uh, yeah. swearing in um, Justice Clarence Thomas. He says the word in 2004, I believe it was. Yeah. He said in 2021, he says the word when he gets sworn into office. Yeah. Uh, he's, I guess, it slipped up. He was trying to say the word eager, wound up saying the N word. I don't know how you make that. And he comes out on Charlemagne's Breakfast Club. Yeah. If you don't vote for me, you aren't black. He, then just just now in the news right now, we've got an article out there where 
Biden wants to uh, distribute crack pipes. Oh yeah, and all of this is in the spirit of racial equality. Yeah, as if black people need equity so they can have free crack pipes. That should be really great for them. It's just what we need. Let's encourage them to take more crack. You know, that's how racist he is. That's how racist the Democrat Party is. I mean, and that's some of that's that's the reason why I'm so excited about this show tomorrow because I really want to ask these questions because to me, uh, as a black person. Oh, you're black. I'm, uh, you know, I, you know, I didn't know Joe Biden told me that I wasn't, but, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but to me, it's, it's offensive to me and I don't take offense to anything. I say, I tell people all the time, you can't offend me. I have to choose to take offense to it, but I do choose to take offense at these things because you're telling me that I, that I can't do better than a crackhead, that I can't be better than that, that I have to do this. I have to be a certain way and you're putting me in a bubble. So I take offense to that. And so that leads into my question with this because I, I feel it affects white people too, but at a, it's uh, at an alarming uh, statistic for blacks is welfare. And so do you believe that we should expand or reduce welfare or keep it as is? Well, we should reduce it. And I have some ideas on that, but to touch on your, your story just now, uh, I actually had a business in Picayune, Mississippi uh, with over a hundred employees and half of them were black and almost all my managers and supervisors were black. And it's not because they were black. It was they're the best people for the job. That's why I keep saying that, you know, when you try to minimize somebody's success, they're oppressed. No, they got that job because they were the best people for it. You know, I didn't look at them and say, well, I need a black guy to do this. No, I, it was that or white trash and, you know, or my other white employees that just didn't care. They wanted to be something. So I made them managers and supervisors and they were my best employees. And to this day, and I sold that company in 2013, to this day, they still call me and ask, man, I wish you'd open up a business again. I'd like to come back to work for you again. And when you talk about the N-word, like I said, I had about 50 black employees. I was called that so many times during the day. I thought that was my name, you know, because when they came in the office, the first thing they said was, hey, you know, I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, but, you know, again, and like with the welfare deal, this is again where I say, yes, we should get well, rid of welfare with the job. And like I tell everybody, I said, look, you know, if you got a minimum wage of seven twenty-five, nobody on welfare is going to want that job. That's why they don't go to work. So what you do is, if you get somebody to go to work on welfare, making seven twenty-five at a McDonald's, well, you slowly lower what they get in welfare. Number one thing is, as soon as you get that job at McDonald's, well, now they're on their insurance. So now they're off of Medicaid's insurance. So now they've got insurance. Now, if you stay there for two, three, four years, well, you get incremental raises. So as you get raises, you drop what you get in welfare down lower and lower. Then that way it gives people the incentive to try to do better. But they don't even take that job because they're worried they're going to lose their welfare. I would rather take that away from them in increments than say, well, you get that 725 job, you're off welfare. 
So now you're incentivizing them not to work. You're exactly. they're keeping on Medicaid when they could go to McDonald's or Starbucks and be on their insurance, and we're getting people off of Medicaid. So again, yeah, you know, no, I don't like welfare. I like people get jobs. To toss into that, you have also in many cases the people who are on public housing and right. they have income restrictions. And if you decide to go get a job and finally pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and then you're making more than what the income of that public housing allows you to have, now you're at risk of losing your home. Right. And so a lot of those things make it counterintuitive right. to, to uh, try to do better because the welfare system is designed to keep you below the poverty level so that you can continue to funnel in government money. And I, you know, that's the reason why I want to get rid of it all together and Don't start incentivizing jobs at Job Corps, get a trade, do something. Yeah. Because let's face it, college isn't for everybody. And, no. for the, and for the majority of people who go to college, they, it's just a worthless piece of paper because they were never told that there's a step beyond college, which is That's getting right. certified and licensed to do whatever it is that you're going to do. And, you know, people always say, well, we need to raise minimum wage. I want to get rid of minimum wage altogether yeah. because yeah. I want people to be hired on their merit because right. minimum wage to me sets the bar low. But yeah. at the same time, it's, it basically markets almost every position as an entry-level position. And right. so as you're beginning to build experience and you're trying to go from entry level to intermediate or to expert, it's harder to do that when the market has labeled practically everything, including managerial positions as entry level and yeah, have even reduced like the wages. Minimum wage. You know, the $15 minimum wage, the trouble is just like when they enacted that in Seattle, you know, in Seattle, they enacted it the $15 minimum wage, which meant the busboy made the same as the chef. So how do you, how can you afford, and I had, a, I had friends up there that own restaurant chains and stuff. And like they said, now, how am I going to, I'm going to have to pay my chef more money and my busboy stuff. So all they did was they fired a lot of people and just said, look, you got to work more. I'll pay you more money, but you're going to have to work more. And they only took the best people. So those entry level jobs were gone because at 15 bucks an hour, not only that, they had to raise all their prices. You know, people don't seem to understand the fact that you know, well, like AOC, she doesn't understand the stack, the fact that, oh, you know, if we raise taxes, they won't raise prices. Oh, wait, have you ever been in business? You raise a price on me, I got to raise a price on them. You raise my taxes, I pass it on to the consumer. You know, it, it's not free. You can't just, okay, we're going to raise your prices and you can't raise your, that's what Venezuela does. They'll raise the prices, but then you can't raise your prices at the restaurant. I had a guy I met in uh, Florida that owned a chain of restaurants in Venezuela and the government dictated what he could sell the stuff for, but he couldn't buy it for what he was selling it for. It cost you more money. He said, well, that's great. These people get to come in and pay this price, but all I'm doing is losing money. He said he gave his restaurant chains away to his, his restaurants to his brother and he hightailed it up here in the United States and he's driving Uber. He says, I'm, I'm making $1,500 a week driving Uber. I'm sending money back to my brother. So again, you know, it, it, anytime the government's involved, you're, you were, we're, we're in trouble. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, Rhett, go ahead and ask your question. I want to try to close this within the next 10 minutes. Sounds good. <laughs> okay. 
Should the United States defend Ukraine against Russia, time, uh, Taiwan against China? And if so, is it worth the risk of nuclear conflict or another world war? Well, for one, we wouldn't have to have that risk if we had a strong president. I mean, if Donald Trump was still president, you know, Taiwan would still be safe. Ukraine would still be safe. Putin and Xi both know that we don't have a president right now. We've got a weak, demented old man that's a puppet by the people behind him. So do I think we should defend him? We shouldn't have to with troops if we have a, a loud enough defense, you know, but the trouble is again, like Biden already gave him his plans out front, you know, that, well, we won't commit troops. Well, you know, even if you're not going to commit troops, you don't tell the enemy you're not going to commit troops. That's the dumbest thing on earth. So you don't have Yesterday that. They had a two-hour press conference about that, and they gave away all the beans. Now you yeah. told them that there's no consequence. Right. Oh, and, and my, uh, a minor invasion is okay. You know, it's like y- you tell the people that, well, wow, this guy's got to really be dumb. He already says there's no way we're putting troops in there. And... If we do a minor incursion, it might be okay. You know, like take Crimea. Well, that was a minor incursion. We let them do that. So now they might take the uh, Donbass region and, you know, okay, well, that's all right. You know, they already had that anyway. So again, we don't lead from strength right now. You know, uh, you have to let them believe that we will do something. And as far as a nuclear war, again, deterrence you know everybody wants to talk about it but nobody's going to be dumb enough to to set off a nuclear weapon i mean you know china and russia combined we probably still have more weapons and more lethal weapons than they do they're not stupid enough because why would they send off a nuclear weapon knowing you'll be annihilated we've got somewhere around i don't know what 1100 to 1200 submarines out there loaded for bear that just one of them can destroy half of Russia. You know, so how in the world would they think, well, this would be a good idea. I'll shoot off a nuclear weapon. Cause as soon as they shoot that off, of course, then again, they could be, well, by the time Biden gets around to knowing it happened and makes a decision, we could all be dead. So yeah, we're in a bad spot right now, but still the deterrence factors there. You know, so the, reason why my the reason why my co-host asked that question is because uh, Mississippi Senator Roger Wicker, yeah. first, the, first, the first time I hear anything from a senator or a person from <laughs> Congress in Mississippi open their mouth is to say that they should, that Congress should give Biden permission to launch nuclear weapons against Russia for Ukraine's sake. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't hear that, but that's a dumb, that's dumb. But of course... I would like to have somebody else and, I, and not Kamala Harris making that decision. You know, I'd rather leave that decision to like a Trump or a Ron DeSantis, not what we got in office right now. But I do believe that, it, I mean, I can't imagine anybody except for possibly North Korea thinking it'd be a good idea to launch a nuclear weapon because the Russians and the Chinese know we have nuclear weapons all over the place that would rain down hell on them. So I, I can't imagine them doing it. But 
and us protecting mm-hmm. them, you know, we should be able to protect Taiwan and Ukraine without ever going there with our own troops. You know, uh, we should do whatever we can to help them not be, because otherwise, you know, once they get Ukraine, you know, it's going to be, well, we got this. While we got Biden, we might want to go ahead and take Lithuania. Yeah. And, uh, I almost think that with Biden, it would be better to just let him have it rather than to risk nuclear war. <laughs> it's true. It's true. That is true. Yeah. Because yes, of Biden, there, I, there's no telling what the same way. I thought the same way. You know, we were talking a lot about, about creating jobs and things like that. Uh, uh, I think one of the biggest issues when it comes to jobs has to come to our, to our schools. Right. You know, they aren't, they aren't teaching our students anything in there. And so the reason why I have this question is basically because of the, of schools. I know we, we I know you probably already agree. Get rid of the teachers unions, all oh, yeah. that stuff. So yeah. this question, do you believe that schools should uh, move more towards privatization or be left as they are? Oh, definitely privatization. I think we need to give more choices and stuff. I believe that the money should follow the kid, have these schools compete. Uh, you know, you've got, I mean, it's crazy when you look at our school system and it's all run by the teachers and union and it's all messed up. You got like Chicago schools, inner schools there. They graduate 41% of their kids out of high school with a 1.0 GPA. What's that kid going to do with a 1.0 GPA? Go to college? No. You know, you got, you got, Port, you got Oregon that says, well, you know, we're going to take it where, you know, reading and writing are not a requirement to come out of uh, high school. Well, what are you going to do when you come out of high school? I mean, other countries are laughing at us because instead of making our curriculum harder to compete in this international world, we're trying to dumb our kids down so they feel good about getting out of, getting out of uh, high school with a diploma that don't do them no good. You know, uh, we need to take in, and it's funny, in those race forums we did, everybody agreed with that. Said, look, we need to strengthen our curriculum. But we also need to take, and I think it's Australia that does it, they actually meet with the students and the ones that don't like school or don't want to be in school, you know, you put them on a different path. How about carpentry, plumbing, electrical, anything else that might make you a success one of these days? Not just, no, you got to go to school. We're going to get you a diploma because nobody gets left behind. And you know what you can do with that diploma? Make it into a plane and float it away because it's not going to do you any good. You know, so again, we need to start looking at, you know, getting people into the work arena with skilled labor and they can leave. I mean, my daughter graduated Northwestern State, top of her class. She went to ASU, graduated, got her master's degree. She's actually a journalist. She worked for Bloomberg News. She just went to work for Denver Post. Um, she started out at 60,000 a year with a master's degree. The plumber that works on my house, his assistant makes 80,000 a year. You know, the electrician, his assistant makes 75, 80,000 a year. No education at all, just electrical. So didn't have to spend $125,000 to get a degree to make $60,000. Now there's nothing wrong with that if you utilize your degree, but like my daughter's one of the few because only 26% of people that leave college with a degree actually use that degree. 
they do something else. A lot of her friends graduated with engineering degrees. You know what they're doing now? Selling real estate and selling uniforms. Because they didn't realize that after you got your degree, you got to go intern somewhere. And you've got to learn and then take a test after a couple of years. You didn't just leave school being an engineer and going to work. So now they're living their best life as a real estate agent and as a, a uniform salesperson. So again, you know, we don't guide our kids, right? Not only that, even in college, we should do something about the fact that if you're going there to get a degree in interior design, probably the most you'll ever make is thirty-five dollars to $38,000. That degree is still going to cost you $100,000. So how fair is that? I mean, you know, and, you're you know, making them take those, these requirements that don't do yeah. any good in that field. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I went in uh, for marine sciences, and going going to transfer it over into paleontological study, but I have to have so many uh, electives, yeah. so many other courses. So I wind up taking pottery and ceramics <laughs> and other and other things like that. But none of these things are going to help me advance my field. Now, did I enjoy those courses? I yeah. absolutely did. I love I love fine arts and stuff like that. But and they get the it's money. not the going to help money. me get in there. And I just yeah. wind up paying more. But for me, my costs were a little bit mitigated because I I I wholeheartedly believe in in community colleges first. Yeah, all the, uh, oh, yeah. and go and go there as long as you can go there because it's cheaper. Get all yeah. your electives out of the way because yeah. so so that way when you go to uh, university you wind up spending significantly less money yeah. because you've already taken all the uh, all the requirement requirements at a different course. Now, of course, some colleges may uh, may not accept certain credits from a particular right. school or something like that. You might have to retake them. But if you can take as many as you can, you eliminate the cost of tuition of going to oh, yeah. say from from uh, from MGCCC to USM. You're eliminating the cost uh, just right. by spending four years at MGCCC versus spending six years at USM. Oh, yeah, and it costs you a fortune as well, too, when you when you do that. But no, that's another thing where, I, like I say, we need more guidance. Uh, uh, we need more guidance from people that are in the know that they can tell these people about, you know, look, this is what your options are. You don't need to spend $30,000 your first couple of years to go to uh, Mississippi State or Ole Miss. Go to Pearl River, go to uh, Perkinston, any of these community colleges, and you can save a fortune. You know, uh, both my brothers graduated from Pearl River Community College. Uh, of course, back then it didn't cost nothing anyway. You know, it's in the 60s and 70s, so they're a little older than me. But uh, again, I mean, these are the kind of guidance we need to be giving people. We need to give them the guidance on the fact that what degree they're looking for might not be right for them, you know, and we need to give guidance to kids in high schools like, you know, you're not going to be a star in college. Sorry, not everybody gets a trophy, but you could be an electrician and make more money. We need to have that guidance out there and we need to have schools compete for that. We need to have schools that, you know, if I don't like this school, my kids going to and it's a bad school and stuff. Well, I want to move to this school over here. He's got a better chance. You know, we need to empower our kids and raise the curriculum. You know, it's like getting rid of gifted classes. Whose dumb idea is that? You normally want to instill people to go out and do better 
when they've got that knack, not keep them down with everybody else. There's a kid that went to Georgia Tech here, and he's he's uh, 13 years old, and he's getting his, uh, I think it's nuclear physics degree. He's a 13-year-old young man, black young man, 13 years old, going to Georgia Tech right now. Now, you want to hold him back and make him stay in the eighth grade until he, everybody else catches up with him? No, you want to incentivize that guy to get out of there. You want to, to make your smart people get smarter. You know, it, everybody's not the same. You can't treat everybody the same. One size don't fit all, I can tell you. I agree. Any closing questions or statements you have, Rhett? Um, I'll just make a comment about what he just said. Um, so thankfully, we managed to make it out of the school system right before things started to go south. We graduated in 2013. And I hadn't even heard anything about getting rid of gifted classes, but I'm not really surprised. Mm -hmm. But the, I was always in gifted classes from like second grade on. And, and both my I think they were quite valuable. Yeah, right. Um, but anyway, I have one last question for you. And really, it could be, uh, okay, let's go with this one. How should the United States determine which countries actually deserve foreign aid and which do not? Well, I'm kind of with Trump there as well, too, is the fact that, you know, most of these countries don't deserve aid at all. I mean, you know, we're giving money to people that don't even like us. You know, why would we give money? We would give money to Russia, $10 billion a year, years after they got rid of their, uh, their submarines and nuclear stuff when, the, when Russia fell. We were still giving them $10 billion 20 years later. You know, we're so used to giving away money and billions don't mean anything to these guys. I don't know about you, but if I had a billion bucks, I would be going to Congress. I'd be enjoying myself, but that's a lot of money, but these guys want to give money away. And I'm one of those guys that thinks that, you know, if you give money away to some of these countries and you're the guy that's the lead, giving it away, somehow or another, that money's coming back to help you out. You know, maybe they're donating to your campaign. I don't trust, any of it you know there's just too much money given away and it floats around out there like it don't cost anybody anything so yeah I, i'm i'm for looking at everybody we give aid to i mean whether we should be or not and definitely we shouldn't be giving money to countries that hate us absolutely 100 agree uh i wish we had more time to me too actually i enjoy talking to you guys even though i got like 10 texts right here yelling at me because <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know i got uh I got a lot of questions on infrastructure, which, you know, you being a business person, I think infrastructure, I should have started with those because I think those are pretty good. But if you guys want to do uh, this again sometime, I'd be happy to. Absolutely. Yeah. Just stick with, stick with my co-host, Rhett. He sets up all of these interviews and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm usually trying to get us some more promotional stuff, trying to get us paid a little bit extra money. There you go. But uh, get that Joe Rogan money. <laughs> as trying to that's the uh, goal is there, <laughs> is there anything that you want to touch on that we have not uh asked you that you think that the consumer or that or i'm not saying consumer thinking business that you think that the viewers the constituents of south mississippi might want to know about you that could push you over the edge well to tell you the truth you know one of the things that i haven't even put out there yet but i'm considering right now this will actually be the first time I talked about it is 
you know, I've challenged Palazzo to a debate a million times and, uh, you know, he's not going to come out and debate me on his FEC violations. So what I might do is I know I have a production company that's a friend of mine. I might actually do a 30 minute piece and put it on prime time, maybe a few different times throughout this campaign to actually explain his violations in common sense so people can understand. Because, you know, again, like I said, it might be cliche, but I hate corrupt politicians. You know, if you can't follow the rules, and this guy's a CPA, if you can't read the rules and you don't know when you're messing up, then you shouldn't be in Congress. And especially you shouldn't be there for over 12 years. You know, and it goes for state senators, it goes for any government official. And I've been looking into a lot of them. And I tell you what, once somebody's been there for over two terms, you need to have a, we should have an outside CPA firm going through everybody's FEC filings from Congress down to the uh, state Congress, state Senate, governor, all these guys, you know, it shouldn't be a way for them to get rich. You know, your campaign money should be for your campaign not giving money away to other politicians, which, you know, if I gave money to Donald Trump and he gave my money to say Mike Pence and I don't like Mike Pence, well, why would I give you money to give to him? To me, again, that's, that's subtle corruption right there because you're paying somebody off for something and, you know, we got to get to the bottom of all that. That's kind of what I'm looking at possibly doing here coming up in the future once the campaign gets kicked off good. Absolutely. We thank you for being here with us and joining us. You know, we're we're not very big, so it helps us out when you guys uh, join along with us and give us your time. And so I appreciate it. And uh, before we go, before we go, tell our tell our, uh, our viewers, where can we find you? Where can we find more information about you, your websites, your uh, social medias? How do we get in contact with you? Yeah, you just go to Carl, the number four congress.com and that's my website and we got links to my twitter page my rumble my youtube my uh facebook uh and you can i'm very accessible i mean just like you guys got to hold me it's fairly easy to get in touch with me and i talk to everybody like i said i'm not a politician i enjoy talking to people and i can learn from you and uh anybody else and if you got a great idea trust me I'll use it as my own. <laughs> okay, well, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And uh, stay tuned for tomorrow's episode where we're going to be uh, interviewing David Sellers, the Democrat nominee for Congress of South Mississippi. We thank our guest, Carl Boyutan, for joining us tonight. And we are signing off now. Thank you, guys.